Uh, scripture reading today is from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, I'm glad you're here today. Um, last week we began to look at the role of um, awe for God uh, in the earliest uh, expression of Christianity that we have. Um, the early chapters of the book of Acts. The book of Acts, of course, is a history uh, by Luke, a continuation of his Gospel of Christ, uh, written to a man named Theophilus, and he basically gives us these episodes, these snapshots of the development of the early church as it spread from Jerusalem to the, the immediate uh, hinterlands, Judea and Samaria, and then finally to the ends of the earth. And um, <clears throat> kind of ends... Uh, in a truncated fashion. Uh, we'll get there later maybe. I'm not sure what our teachers in the, in the present class on Acts are going to, you know, how they're going to finish it, but if the, the book kind of just ends uh, abruptly. There isn't a conclusion. Um, it just You just read about Paul continuing to teach. He's in Rome and so on. And a lot uh, of, of people have noticed that maybe that's an invitation for us as Christians for whom these books are Holy Scripture to finish the story ourselves, to continue the story rather, and to continue uh, living the life of disciples of Jesus. And so what we're doing today in the second uh, part, the continuation of the lesson that we began last week, is to look at the role of awe in uh, this community of Christ followers that forms immediately after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this should be of special interest to anyone interested in the model of first century Christianity. Anybody who's interested in emulating the church of the apostolic age. And so we, we raised the question last week, which we'll continue to examine today, and that, that is what role does awe for God, this sense or emotion which produces worship, what role does that have in a church that is restored? Um, you know, talking about restored Christianity or a Christianity that's reformed according to the documents of the New Testament is a big topic, um, and many different folks throughout the ages, uh, not just people in our general faith tradition, have, have sought to do that. Uh, that's pretty much what the Protestant Reformation was about. We're going to talk about that in an upcoming uh, quarter on the history of Christianity, uh, that and other questions about what, what Christianity, has, how people have understood it throughout the ages, and, and what insights we can gain from that about ourselves. But that, that'll be for, uh, I think that starts in March. But suffice it to say at this point that <clears throat> there are a lot of things we, we might think about restoring from the pages of the New Testament, if I can use that word, restoring, um, that we maybe haven't thought about as much as some of the others. We sometimes go to that project looking through lenses that are almost like a, a, a filtration device that filters out certain things. We come with certain questions, and so we get certain answers back from the pages of the Bible. Other things are right in there, been there all along for 2,000 years, and we... we Read over them. Maybe awe is one of those, because when we open this book of Acts to this paragraph in Acts 2, 42-47, we read that this, this 
remarkable church also had this feature of awe. They experienced awe. And Luke bothers to tell us that. He doesn't just say, you know, signs and wonders were being done in their midst and they were having all things together and selling their possessions and radically meeting the needs of each other, of one another, in, in ways that are not typical of human beings. Uh, there's no government mandating they do that. They're not going to be, you know, looking at uh, the point of a sword or facing taxes or uh, going to jail. This is just voluntarily, uh, people voluntarily giving of, uh, you know, sacrificing of their own things to give to others who share with them this newfound faith in a crucified and resurrected uh, Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. And they are spending their time together, breaking bread, they're praising God. What's at the heart of all that? I don't think we can separate that from this sense of awe. And awe is a word of worship, which is our theme for 2020. So today, part two of this study looks at um, these Jewish converts to Jesus Christ who constituted the first church of Jesus and how they were full of awe for God. Now last week, I just want to review really quickly, uh, last week we saw that awe for God is a transforming agent. It's transformative. Divine awe creates a new kind of human being, a new kind of humanity. And I want to just remind us of this radical change in these people. Many of the Jews who constitute this, this first church in Jerusalem that we just read uh, the description of in, in Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, many of those very same people were just 52, 53 days earlier in the multitude, standing before Pontius Pilate, shouting, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! In fact, Peter, the Apostle Peter, who stands up in Acts 2 and delivers this famous sermon, which really inaugurates the first church, convicts them of that. He reminds them of that. He says, Let all the house of Israel, Acts 2.36, know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, He's Lord, He's Kurios, He's the Master, the King, the, the, the Sovereign, and He is the Christ, the anointed Messiah that the Israelite uh, Scriptures talked about. But this is the same individual that y'all crucified. You were in the group. You're guilty. And, you know, we could ask the question, who crucified Jesus? Who, who gets the guilt for that? Whose fault is that? Is it, is it the Roman government? Well, yes, in a sense, because Rome's representatives, Pontius Pilate, and to some extent Herod the Great, are the ones who, who execute the, the execution. Um, on the other hand, it's the Jews who are in the multitude, the Jewish people, Jesus' own people, who fail to see that He is the Messiah. They're in the crowd saying, release Barabbas, crucify this Jesus. But I think we could extend that question who actually crucified Jesus further and uh, extend it to ourselves. Because Isaiah 53 is among the passages which say that we all, every human being, have turned rebelliously away from God's way, each to his own way or to her own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus, on the Lamb, the iniquity, the lawless disregard of all of us that's been put on Him. He who knew no sin, Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, became sin. He became our sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So who crucified Jesus? I did. You did. The Jews did. The Romans did. Everybody who's ever sinned did. And so we should be interested 
in anything that could transform us from that doomed state as sinners who fall short of the glory of God to a new kind of human being which is living into the story that God gave us and, uh, and living out of this resurrection life. So these people, of course, then uh, respond to Peter's message. Peter stands up and based on the resurrection, the empty tomb, and the remarkable events of Pentecost that they've just witnessed and, and his sermon, Peter's sermon, linking all of these events to ancient uh, scriptural prophecies from the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testaments. These people now have a radically altered perspective and they say in Acts 2, what shall we do? We, we messed up. And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we get to Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 42 to 47, the text that was just read by Don a few minutes ago. Thousands of these people respond to Peter's invitation. They're baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. They, they uh, are, are given the, the Holy Spirit, the, the presence of God because of what Jesus Christ did. The same Jesus that they had weeks ago, mere weeks ago, renounced. And this baptism of theirs wasn't some end in itself. It was something which signified a whole new beginning Romans 6 says, do you not know, Paul later writes to the church in Rome, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, He didn't stay dead, He was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. And that's what we see here in this early description of the church. All comes upon every soul, and as a result... All who believed are together. Think of, think of all the opposite of togetherness that characterizes human relationships. Strife, conflict, prejudice, hatred, fear, chauvinism, bigotry, oppression. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it's, we just get, we're creative. We come up with new ways every generation to do the same old thing. They're together. They don't even all speak the same language, and they're together. They don't come from the same places, they're together. And they're so together they have all things in common. They're selling possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to anyone who has needs. They're hanging out, breaking bread to get, to, together every day. They've got glad and generous hearts. This is a transformation when you consider where these people were a few weeks ago. And it's no wonder that all is recorded here. The awe that characterizes them is the, the, the internal combustion that's fueling this, that's propelling this change. And so I just wanted to remind us that transformation is uh, very you know, remarkable and, and very important. That's what we want to be. We want to become holy people. And it's in some connection, in some way connected to awe that we have for God. Secondly, all for God, divine awe, is magnetic. It is magnetic. And by this I mean that it is attractive. It is compelling. You don't have to believe the scriptures are from God for it to be compelling. You don't have to believe in God on some level for this to be magnetic. 
This kind of transformation is so unique, so uncharacteristic of our world throughout its history, even today, that when people see something like that, they cannot help but look at it. It's like a good train wreck, right? It's like, that, that's so remarkable, I, I can't not look, I, I want to talk about it, I want to learn about it, it's really curious. This is not from this earth. This is otherworldly. And to the extent that the church is being transformed by divine awe, it presents to the world, the world in which the church exists, where we all live, it presents a new, much more compelling way to do life, to be human. And notice here that this is all something that has an impact on those around them. Verse 47, the last verse in the paragraph that we're looking at in this two-part sermon series. It says that these people, these Jewish converts to Jesus, this earliest church of Jesus Christ, are people who are characterized by praising God, and also it says they're having favor with all the people, all the people around them in the general community. So this has an impact on outsiders, you might say, on the unchurched, on the unbelievers, on the yet-to-become Christian. They, they, their, their activities are, are garnering in favor with all of their neighbors, and the Lord is adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. So they're growing. They're multiplying. Why? Because when people see this, they're attracted. This is magnetic. But this magnetism, this ability of the gospel, when it's lived out in the lives of, 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 of saints, of disciples, this works only if that transformation is explicitly tied to the source of the transformation. Notice that it says they are praising God. They're giving credit where credit is due. And God gets the credit. I might have told this story before, I can't remember. I've been preaching here for a while, told a lot of stories, and I'm 58, so sometimes I tell things more than once. Like, actually, sometimes I don't tell things more than once. That's probably more accurate. But anyway, some of you, plenty of you are new anyway, or you're forgetful. Let's be real, you don't remember my sermons. You remember a story I tell sometimes. You know, Larry does. Anyway, um, there, I was teaching one year, a few years ago, uh, modern American history, and um, we we have a unit on civil rights. The sixty, we have a couple a couple of units, you know, lecture blocks on on the sixties, um, and part of it, one of them has to do with civil rights and race relations and all that. And so, <clears throat> one of the things I was doing, and, and the readings they had to read to prepare for the class, and the papers they had to write, and then what I talked about in class, were a lot of readings by civil rights activists and leaders in the in the late fifties and early sixties, every one of whom was a, a believer. Fannie Lou Hamer, Martin Luther King Jr., I go on and on and on, and they all connect their civil rights work with uh, the church that they grew up in and, and Bible passages. They're quoting Amos, let justice flow, like, you know, flow down like rivers and righteous like a mighty stream. And they're quoting Isaiah and they're quoting uh, the Sermon on the Mount and on and on and on. And I, I, I wasn't, wasn't, well, we weren't doing church there. I was teaching history. But the fact is, the, the American Civil Rights Movement came out of the African-American church. And then a lot of uh, people who weren't African-American began to join it. Now, it's also true 
And we talked about this, that some of the staunchest opposition to changing Jim Crow laws and systematized institutionalized racism came from conservative evangelical white churches. Just a fact. There's no denying that. If you want, if nobody, it doesn't matter. That's a history point. Anyway, there, there's just a zillion sources that prove that. But anyway, uh, and there's certain circles where I wouldn't even have to say that. Um, I had a, a student come up to me, or actually send me an email after the class, after the course was over, and this student had worn kind of Christian swag the whole time. She had church camp t-shirts and a cross around, you know, I could tell she was religious, it looked like it. Um, and she emailed me and said, thank you so much for connecting some of my social justice sensibilities to my faith. I've been on campus for four years, she was a senior, and I've never heard, and this is a pretty uh, socially liberal, you know, politically liberal, social justice concerned kind of campus. So this is not uncommon to talk about this kind of thing on this campus but she'd never heard it connected to Jesus or to Isaiah or to the Bible or to the strong Christian impulse that has run throughout American history. She'd never seen that as connected. That's amazing to me. When you go read the people who did it, it's explicitly connected. And my point is this. There, there are, in, in the body politic, in American culture, there are still, it's like a, a snake you've chopped the head off of. It's still going to twitch for a while. You know how a snake will do that? Morbid illustration, but uh, she's killed a few snakes. A lot of things will do that, you know. And, and it's like we still have the ethics of Jesus sometimes in our culture, but people have chopped the head off. They've forgotten why. And Christians sometimes abdicate some of those concerns to, you know, political movements. Here's what these people did. They're practicing this concern for poor people in their midst. They can't control the whole world, but they can in their midst model this in a radical way. But look what else they're doing. They are praising God. This, is, this, ha this snake is twitching because it has a head still attached. You see what I'm saying? This isn't just the, 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 you know, the rigor mortis movements of something that's going to you know, fade out pretty soon. And I wonder how long the ethics of Christianity will still be in the public square as people become more and more post-Christian in America. And that's not our concern. Our concern is the nation that is the kingdom of Jesus, the church. But we can do something about that. And notice that these people are giving God the credit. They're not just doing the ethics of Christ, they're pointing to Christ and saying He's the reason. He is animating this behavior. And that is how uh, the people being merely attracted and curious about this new phenomenon of this, this radical love, selfless sacrificing love, gets connected to the cross and the gospel. That's because people explicitly say, this is because of Jesus. This is because of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in Jesus and died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Okay. One more illustration and we'll move on. So this is the Emperor Julian, Roman, uh, Emperor of the Roman Empire in, um, in the 300s, in the 4th century A.D. And Julian was not a, a Christian. There are lots of Christians in the Roman Empire by this point, uh, tons actually. He is a pagan who, who has as one of his objectives um, during his tenure as emperor to restore traditional Roman religion, pagan religion, in the faith, you know, that's, that's for him old-timey, old-timey and traditional. He likes it how it was when he was young. Anybody relate to that? 
I love how it was when I was 35. Can we pickle that forever? Problem is, the next generation is going to want to do the same thing and the one before did. <laughs> right? But he wanted to do that. Only that, what, that meant for him pre-Christian religion. He wants to go way back to the old days. And he wonders why, what they can do in the face of this rapidly spreading Christianity. Has no, you know, there's no real reason to explain it, how it took off like it did. It had once been a tiny minority, and now it's gaining, or has gained adherence right and left. And they weren't using military coercion. They didn't have state funding, at least for a whole lot of the time. Uh, they just practiced this radical love, organically, person to person to person. They were selfless, daily, 24-7. And this concerned the Emperor Julian. Because when he looked out, he saw one of the things they were doing is, not only did they take care of their own, these new followers of Jesus that were proliferating across the empire, they seemed to take care of everybody in the community when somebody got sick. When there was a problem, it was these ragtag Christian people who would step in and help the sick, the needy. And there wasn't a welfare state, so if people didn't get something like that, they, didn't, they died. Here's a quote. He says, it is disgraceful, the Emperor Julian said, while the impious Galileans, that's what he called the Christians because they emanated from Galilee, while they support both their own poor and ours as well, all men see that our people, the Romans, lack aid from us. And so he begins to set up a system of hospices, these sort of proto-welfare type establishments to... Uh, provide poor relief because he's basically trying to keep up with the Christians who are just doing it organically. So that's, it's magnetic. Sometimes people get all bent out of shape because our government isn't doing this or that or the other. You, you, you're not allowed to pray out loud or do this. I tell you what, you can love out loud. And that is so much more powerful than getting a law or two on your side. They didn't have that in the first century. And all kinds of laws against them. They were persecuted by the time you get 100, 200 years later. And a little bit even earlier. So this is the engine that will, will draw people, uh, the magnet that will draw people to us. Okay, one more thing. As powerful and life-changing and magnetic as divine awe is... We've got to note one other thing about it, and that comes from this paragraph in Acts 2 as well. And that is that it's, for lack of a better word, contingent. Contingent. What do I mean by that? Well, contingency is the idea that something is not automatic. It depends, right? Sort of like dot, dot, dot. I could be, it could not be. The, the conclusion remains to be seen. Where this is going is open-ended. There's, there's, there's a sense of contingency. And what, what I mean by that is that, as I said, all for God is not uh, the default path. It isn't something that just automatically happens because we exist and God exists. In other words, God created us as free will beings. We're, we're all endowed with eyes, but we can choose not to look upon God. We're all given ears. But ears to hear, to use a phrase of Jesus, uh, that's a choice. Having ears to hear is different from just having ears. 
Having eyes to see is different from just having eyes. We're talking here about a disposition that we have to have. A spiritual posture that we adopt or don't adopt. Now God filled the, the, the universe with traces of the transcendent, with evidence for His existence. And not only His existence, but, but in Romans 1 and 20 we read that, that we, we can see from the things that are created God's power and His divinity. There's an exquisiteness to the cosmos that, that points to something beyond it. But here's the thing. You and I, we can choose not to look at it, not to look for it, not to be sensitive to it. You can make your life a blur of activity to where you, know, you, 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 don't, get any more, you don't get any deeper than like an inch below the surface. We, we can make money and pay our bills and turn on the TV at night. We can numb ourselves into an existence that isn't much deeper than a beast in a field, honestly. Got a little more ram to work with, but we're pretty much doing the same thing. I, we're following our desires. We're trying to not get hurt and get all the things we want to meet our appetites. And one of your appetites might be to come to church and sort of play church. And you can do all of that with having almost zero all for God. Because we're talking about choices we make. A disposition, a spiritual posture. Full awe for God himself, himself results only from being in the presence of God. And if you're in the presence of God, you'll be awestruck. Think of all the people in the Bible who, who merely see an angel from God and they fall to their faces. Right? Jacob wrestles the angel or God, depending on you know, which part of that narrative you're reading, some representative of God, some manifestation of God, in the weirdest passage in all the Bible, in my opinion, but also one of the most wonderful and evocative of so many other biblical themes. Jacob is wrestling the divine being. Remember how he leaves that episode? With a limp. He's changed. And I want to tell you, when we encounter the true and living God, we will be changed. Isaiah saw God. He was lifted up in Isaiah 6. Remember that early vision in the prophecy? And it says that he heard the seraphim singing. Smoke filled the, 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 the room they were in. And he saw the trains of, of, of the divine one's garment. And he hears this angelic song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And remember his response? Woe is me. There's fear, but then there's wonder too, because then God says, after pardoning him, who will go for us? And he says, here, here am I, send me. He's transformed. When we come in, the, in contact with the presence of God, we will always be transformed. But guess what? Religious people can be sometimes the most insulated from the presence of God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, a Jewish sect, who were pretty serious about their, their own take on Judaism, on, in their day, biblical uh, religion. Matthew 22, verses 22, 29, he says that they did err not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. A lot of believers don't know the power of God. We know a lot about God, but we don't know God. <clears throat> and God allows us 
as volitional creatures, free will creatures, to choose to see him or not, to choose to stay in his presence and seek his presence or not. All for God isn't automatic, it's contingent. So here's what I want you to notice about our text, verse 42. These people who were overcome with awe, all come, had come upon every soul, and they're so transformed, they just live their lives together. Their whole new way of doing life is radically altered. Look what it says in verse 42. They had devoted themselves, after being baptized into Christ for forgiveness of sins, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. And then it says, and then only does it say, all comes upon every soul. All does not come upon us unless we're devoting ourselves to seeing it. Now, you don't have to try super hard because it's everywhere. Not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus says, without God. Right? The, 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 the cattle on a thousand hills belong to them. He, the Psalms talk about how he's feeding everything all the time. Even when we don't know these things, they're in a different continent than we are. God's taking care of them. You can go down to these thermal vents at the bottom of, of the ocean and there's this whole range of organisms that people didn't even know existed 100 years ago. God's there. You can go down to subatomic particles. God's there. You can go out to the furthest galaxy. God's there. You can feel His presence as you hold that baby or grandbaby. As you fall in love. As you work together with a a friend who, you know, sticks closer than a brother. There's so many ways. Good food. Why is food so good? Why? That doesn't make any sense. All, the only thing that makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint is that food sustains us and we get to reproduce and, you know, pass our DNA on. Why is it so good? You know, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about that. We, we have these appetites for beauty and good food and so many things and, and it turns out there are things that fulfill all those appetites. That's interesting. We got really lucky or there's something going on design-wise. And I think we all would agree that, that the latter is the case. Problem is God doesn't force us to devote ourselves to Him. Alright, I want to close the lesson by noting the four things here. Just a, a brief uh, comment on each of the four things they devote themselves to. And I want to suggest to you that if we want more a more worshipful spirit 24-7. We're not in this year talking just about what goes on here. We're only going to spend one month on that. We're talking about worship in the most broad and basic fundamental sense of you being in love with God. Us being smitten, our heart being captured by the beauty and grandeur and majesty of our God. That will transform us. And I would suggest nothing else really will. Because at the end of the day, you're going to do what you want to do. You're going to do what you want to do. Um, so, what do they devote themselves to? They devote themselves to four things. But I want to suggest to you that summed up, all four of these things, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, each in its own way amount to, if we participate in those things as they did, those amount to going further into the presence of God. When we engage in these four things, as this early church did, we are entering the presence of God in some sense. And being in the presence of God is what evokes awe for God. And if you're not around Him, if you've closed your eyes and stuffed your ears up with, you know, cotton, you, God allows us to not notice 
It's still going to rain on the just and the unjust. The sun's still going to shine. But you can have no clue or no real deep concern about where that came from. But if you take the time to go into his presence, you cannot help but be awed. These four things, let me suggest to you as we wrap our lesson up, take us into the presence of God. All right, first of all, he says the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's he talking about here? Well, they already had a body of, 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 of <coughs> texts that they called the scriptures. The law, the prophets, the writings, what we would call the Old Testament. And as different, what we would now call New Testament documents, get written and circulated, they get added to the canon of Scripture. And included in those especially are the writings of, of some of the apostles, like the Apostle Paul, who was converted on the road to Damascus. He had been an opponent of Jesus and his followers, and now he becomes arguably the greatest proponent of Jesus and the way. Here's what he wrote about Scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all Scripture. He's been talking about the Old Testament Scriptures that Timothy was raised on, but now he says, kind of morphs it into a more general point, all Scripture. Notice this phrase, is breathed out by God. Your version may say, inspired of God. I want you to think about when you are opening your Bible. A lot of people want to get closer to God. We make New Year's resolutions if we're believers about getting closer to God. Do you know that when you open this, you are reading words that the I am, Yahweh, I am that I am, that, that being itself, that existence itself uttered to us, to human beings. He breathed them out. Did he work through human beings? Yes. Did he use their personalities and their vocabularies and the problems that they dealt with in their day and time, whether they're speaking Greek or Hebrew, or writing in Aramaic? Yes. He's king of kings, lord of lords. There's no nook or cranny where God isn't lord. So he's, he's lord of all of that. Science, history, all of it. So yeah, he used human beings. But repeatedly the Bible tells us that every word of Scripture, although it is the word of a human being, is also in some mysterious sense breathed out by God. And I've heard disturbing things, people saying things like, you know, really, when they, especially when they notice there's per certain problems with aspects of the Bible, like it comes across as, you know, too genocidal or too patriarchal or too this or too that. It looks like it, it, slavery was okay for a while on some level. And I've got answers to those things personally, if you want to talk about it, that work for me. Um, uh, still, some of those are more difficult than others, but the answer is not to say we don't really need the Bible, we just need Jesus. Seen that trending a little bit in the blogosphere. That's not new, by the way. People were saying that in the 1880s and 90s. German higher critics love to say that. So that's, we're just recycling something. You need to go back a little more in your reading. A few more generations. But here's the problem with that. We don't need the Bible, we just need Jesus. How much do you know about Jesus without the Bible? You know that he existed. We could ask Janan afterwards. She could probably rattle these off. You know, Tacitus or Tacitus or however you say it. Um, you know, talks about Crestus. And there, there are three or four. Josephus mentions him. There are mentions of Jesus. You can tell that he existed. You know next to nothing about Jesus without the New Testament. There, no Bible, no Jesus. That's just a data point. We, don't, we dare not give up Scripture 
or de-emphasize Scripture. It is God-breathed. You want to get close to God? How do you get close to your husband or your wife? By hanging out and talking. Here's God talking. Are we going to listen? They did. And all resulted. Secondly, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. The fellowship. The participation. I haven't looked this up, but I'm pretty sure it's the word koinonia. You know, the, the joint participation in the God. They're sharing something. It's social. is isn't just an individual in God. It's social. It's a group. Church is a collective noun, like flock or team. The assembly, the called out. In the New Testament era, God's temple. Remember, these people are meeting in the temple environs. But in the New Testament era, we're told that the temple is the collection of Christians. It's not a building anymore. In fact, Peter says that each of us is a living stone. Each Christian, each soul, each life is a living stone in this new temple. Such that in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul warns the Corinthian church, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. God is in us. His Spirit is coursing through us. We're part of the body of Jesus. And it's animated by the Spirit of God. You want to offer God? You want to get close to God? How about coming into His midst where He lives? Be with His people. Be in fellowship with them actively, concretely. Don't avoid times to come together with God's people. In small groups, around a table, in Bible classes here, church assemblies here, anything you can do. Because what you're doing when you get with God's people, you're in the presence of God. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. I'm going to assume here he's talking about the Lord's Supper. Some people think he's talking about just daily meals. It seems like it changes a little bit, and they talk about that on down. Don't know that for sure. Maybe it included both. I'm going to assume that. I think the points we make here will, will hold either way. But the breaking of bread, if he's talking about the Lord's Supper or communion, you may remember that in Luke 24, on the road to Emmaus, there were two people walking with Jesus. Jesus comes up alongside him, the resurrected Jesus. They don't know who he is. And they're talking about the recent events and how down... Uh, down and out they are because the one on whom they had hung their hopes has now been crucified. And then they sat down to a meal. And remember what it says? When did they recognize Jesus? In the breaking of the bread. Which reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10, 16. How is it that we meet the presence of God in communion? The cup of blessing that we bless, Paul asked. Is it not a participation? Same Greek word as fellowship, by the way. Is it not a participation, a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then he, the verse I actually wanted is in the context. I don't have it up here. Um, he says that we are that bread. The church is that body, that bread. So we meet God's presence in communion as well. And finally, prayer. They devoted themselves to the prayers. God repeatedly in the scripture invites us to talk to him. How amazing is that? The force behind the universe that brought everything into existence. <clears throat> and according to Colossians, in whom it coheres, it holds together. Ask us to talk to him and he will hear us. Jeremiah 29, 12 would be one example. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Pray to me, I'll hear you. God wants to talk to you and have you hear him. 
He wants you to talk to Him, and He'll hear you. He wants you to meet with His people, because we are His temple, and His Spirit dwells in us. He wants us to take communion, where He is with us, animating the very body that we are in Him, and that is represented in the bread and in the fruit of the vine. So, awe will result if we go to the presence of God. We need to devote ourselves to those things by making actual commitments to sacrifice other things, maybe. Precious time. I realize it's precious, but so is getting to know God. <coughs> Participating in the sorts of things that we read about here. We're going to be glimpsing the God who alone can inspire awe and wonder and healthy fear and transformation and can draw to Him all those lost souls around us which we once were. Let's just resolve to, to glorify Him, to see His glory, to learn His ways, to see His beauty, His majesty, His provision, His goodness, His steadfast love, more and more and more. That's what I've been praying, not only for myself and my family, but for all of you since fall. That specifically. That, that, that'll be palpable for all of us. We won't be fearful anymore. And, and we won't be anxious anywhere near to the extent that we typically are, if we really see the, glorified, uh, the glory of God. Remember, when Abraham was asked to believe these crazy things, like, you know, you're the, you're the, you're the patriarch of promise. I'm going to multiply your seed so, so uh, massively that it's going to be like the grains of sand on all the seashores. And then he says, oh, the son that's the son of promise, Isaac, I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. We're told that Abraham did not waver in trust as he gave glory to God in Romans 4. Giving glory to God is another way of saying worshiping. As God becomes big and the fear of God is just huge and palpable in your life, then all the other fears pale in comparison. The only way to defeat a fear is a bigger fear. And we need the healthy fear of God, which involves both wonder and a little bit of caution. Right? Thank you for your attention. Hope this has been helpful. Um, we are going to now stand and sing uh, the song, uh, More Than Conquerors. And if we can help any of you grow, draw, uh, draw closer to God, uh, we would invite you to come to one of these chairs here, and we will glad to, be glad to do whatever we can do. Let's all stand together and sing.